President Pavlopoulos, Mrs. Pavlopoulos, Excellencies, dear friends, Iana Ushla Sakorja Ilyuk. May I first of all say, President, what a wonderful presentation for which I thank you. But also I do want to say to you that what a great honor it has been for Sabine and I to be here in your presence and also pleasure to return to Athens following our state visit last year to what is really a special and I know will be a memorable occasion for us, these discussions this week. I appreciate deeply the special privilege it is to be addressing you in this unique and historic setting of the Stoa of Atalos here in the ancient Agora. So, dear friends, a young Erke as we say in the Gaelic language, May I express my profound thanks also to Stephen Dunbar Johnson and to Achilles Talsas, President of the Athens Democracy Forum, for the invitation to deliver the third Aristotle address. And I do appreciate the honor it is, that invitation. And I want to all thank you for, also thank you for the warm welcome which you have extended to Sabine and I and to the delegation that has accompanied us from Ireland and indeed to our embassy in Athens. Reflecting on this visit to the Agora, I was aware, of course, of its significance in the history of ancient Athens and for democracy itself as a particular gathering place for discourse here in the heart of the capital. And thus to speak at this site is a moving experience for anybody aware of the debt we all in generation after generation owe to that founding exchange of ideas, that pursuit of truth and beauty in its wholeness of mind and body that was the Greek contribution. And let us be grateful too to those who saved that contribution for us, leaving, in some cases after their expulsion from Europe, a legacy of translation of thought that was not confined by borders. The Stoa, as we know, served not only as a vital point of new dialogue and ideas, but also as a place of shelter, score. Perhaps, therefore, as we face the many challenges for democracy today, and concerned for all of our European family, it is especially fitting that we gather here this evening in advance of our meeting of the Ariolus Group, kindly hosted by you, President, which coincides with the broader dialogue and debate taking place under the aegis of the Athens Democratic Forum. All of the Irish playwrights from John Millington Singh, William Butler Yeats, George Bernard Shaw, and on to Brian Friel, Tom Murphy, and Marina Carr, Mary Elizabeth Burke Kennedy in the modern period, the major poets, including Seamus Heaney, one of our Nobel laureates, Brendan Kennelly, Tom Poland, Michael Longley, they have all published work based on the Athenian tragedies. And indeed, as with many Irish poets, Shemizini in particular was drawn to Greece time and again over the years. Then too, in the contemporary period, a critical literature scholarship 
in Ireland is rich with work, such as that of Professor Brian Arkham's Irish appreciation of Greek tragedy, his Hellenizing Ireland, a major work of scholarship, and Professor Fran O'Rourke's Aristotelian interpretations, to which I will refer. It has been, is, and will always be a pleasure, a moral renewal in intellectual terms, through the resonance, as it suggests, to visit Greece, a country and a people that has given and continues to give so much to Europe, indeed to the world, by way of its contribution to civilization, both ancient and contemporary, in culture, aesthetics, and philosophy, including, as you have just heard, a demonstration of the founding discourses on democracy itself. For this is the very reason we are all gathered here today in the Agora, where Athenians dating back to the 6th century BC of Cleisthenes gathered to host their assemblies that would, after a major political upheaval, as Professor Arkin tells us, all adults, male citizens at birth, were members of the assembly ecclesia, with regular attendances of 6,000, thus making that discourse on this hill one of the earliest and most important wellsprings of democracy. It is a discourse that found its way into the creative work of all the nations of Europe and beyond. In our own Gaelic language, the mythical stories of Greece have always been present, and some of our modern plays recall the specific use that was made of the classical sources of Greek myths in the Gaelic head schools our own language having been prescribed. But in those early schools, head schools that preceded the founding of primary education in Ireland, and which would then in turn be responsible for the widespread use of the English language in Ireland. Indeed, the distinguished professor and scholar of classics, George Thompson, early in the 1930s, he taught at University College Galway, an institution of which I taught myself for decades, in discussing his translation of Homer's Odyssey into Gaelic, a task he undertook on the Irish-speaking Blasket Islands off the Kerry coast in the west of Ireland. In his opening contribution to what it was to become a seminal contribution on oral culture, he stressed the role of oral culture in the genesis of Homer's great work. The lessons of that period and its discourses remain for us. Yes, they include the price paid for imperial tendency, the price of war, the ethics that might or might not be present or invoked in the relationship of victor and vanquished. But it also includes, let us never forget, the importance of the performative, taking an idea and making it happen for the people beyond the Agora, accepting the responsibility of extending the understanding and the discourse to amplification by the performativity is also something for which we are indebted to Greece. I have said that a constant in the Greek emphasis is wholeness, wholeness of life, the body, community, it informs the architecture of that early period, and on through centuries it privileges the indivisibility of culture. We should never forget 
that for the festival of Dionysius, a comedy had to be submitted for consideration, together with the tragedy, thus recognizing that all of life was also in the comedy, the movement and the tragedy being towards an emancipatory catharsis. In both, there was the privileging of the performance. From this, let us take perhaps just two lessons. The achievement of authenticity was sought to be delivered through words to the collective. And thus, in the movement from monologue through dialogue, we can make our way to the lodgment and encounter with the wisdom that is in the words that are given to the chorus, the message that engaged the audience. Dear friends, what an empowering analogy this can be for our own times, engaging with the European street as our agora, turning our words into the discernible shape of proposed resolution in action. A further lesson is that through the privileging of the performative, the contribution of the heart in the achievement of truth was necessary. Aristotelian reason would not suffice on its own to offer a glimpse of the fullness of life's wonder, hope, or grief. What was at stake was, as Ernest Renan put it in 1865, in his description of Le, Le Miracle Grec, a kind of eternal beauty. So, Dear President, our nations may be standing at different corners of this beautiful, fascinating, and varied continent. Yet it is easily recognized what connections we've had from the earliest times. And even more importantly, how those values that invoke both reason and culture in performances that we might share in common in the future may assist us as we work together in the crafting and making of a union of European publics that will have the capacity to acknowledge, respect and celebrate Europe in all its diversity, in all of its possibilities. A European Union which we might offer as not only a regional achievement, but which, because of its recognized farce in humanity, a global intergenerational exemplar. Such a union, I suggest, must be built on the production and preservation of pluralist interdisciplinary intellectual work by citizens who have the courage to make an interrogation of how life is to be lived. It can draw on the memory and experience of our various but shared historical struggles for independence. Experience that includes a large and valuable migratory component. Both Greece and Ireland will mark important anniversaries of 1821 and 1921 on our respective paths to independence. And I'm sure that over the coming period, we will find ways of reflecting on that shared history. Drawing on all of this, but also on the imaginative humanistic values in our peoples and their culture, surely we are capable of giving an ethical, inclusive dimension to life and the structures on which our shared future on a vulnerable planet might be based. For all of our peoples, our experience is a rich one, one that contains moments of emancipation as well as anguish, experiences that equip us well for the challenge of envisioning and constructing a European Union of humanity 
shaped to meet the needs of all our citizens. And I believe we must, to achieve this, become ever closer, become better listeners to each other's and beyond the gaze of our vision, in our discourse sharing, our hopes, our shared challenges. And it is through a recognition of the healing and life-enhancing power of culture that we have been neglected, that we must call up again that indomitable courage that is needed to be different, to take a stand, to tend to endure, to have moral courage. What we're seeking is not omniscience, but rather the materials and instruments for achieving or restoring trust. And in doing that, we will always have to acknowledge fallibility and I think an, in, an indomitable wonder. Professor Fran O'Rourke has told us that the Irish who valued Aristotle as a treasure, being Irish and island people, did not regard him as omniscient. Professor O'Rourke refers to James Joyce's Scribble de Hobble, James Joyce's workbook for Finnegan's Wake, where he wrote of three things Aristotle didn't know, labor of bees, flow of tide, mind of women. We in the European Union have resources of mind and heart, performances of both agony and shared joy and compassion to call upon. For despite its mixed historical experience, including the numerous historic achievements of our continent, many centuries of which were tarnished by war and suffering, the European Union today still retains a capacity from its legacy of thought, importantly from its Greek contribution on the rationale, from its historic commitment to intellectual discourse that led to the undoing of the trammels of empire and that informed the struggle against imperialism. And how useful it would be to acknowledge that imperialism, as Hannah Arendt might put it, so that it no longer has the capacity to disable us from what we might do towards continents like Africa and Latin America, no longer curtail our imagination. We in our time have been given a unique opportunity and indeed responsibility to assert, deepen, and where necessary, reassert those founding values that of which we have just heard. Values of democracy, cohesion, shared prospects, human rights, and as you have heard brilliantly put, the rule of law in an increasingly interdependent world of vulnerabilities in which those values are challenged. And I said a world of vulnerabilities. That is the definition of interdependency, I stress. These values are neither abstract, nor are they optional extras, nor are they ever confined by borders. They go to the very core of our humanity, and such values should be respected, of course, and upheld by all member states. Central to these values and their vindication is a concept that is central in all of the belief systems at their best and cultural systems of the world. I think the concept, I think as well, respect for the treatment of the other. Treatment of the other, of meeting the other with what the cultures and belief systems, as I have said, called hospitality to acknowledge in the importance of recognizing and understanding 
the circumstance of the movement of people who in the exercise of their hopes are bringing with them their stories and their cultural endowments and their fears. For we Europeans are, all of us, the product of migratory beings ourselves, sometimes forced, other times voluntary, sometimes chosen. That is the evidence of millennia. Paul Valer rewrote in 1919 of how after the needless catastrophe of a World War I that was the collision of empires, an extraordinary shudder ran through the marrow of Europe. We too in our times have felt a shudder, nowhere more so than during the recent financial crisis, the subsequent sovereign debt crisis, and the so-called Great Recession that affected much of the Western world, including Europe. I am so aware of the high price that was paid, and most acutely by those most vulnerable peoples who were at a far distance from the speculative forces that were the source of that. If this is the sun country of Aristotle and Plato and Homer and Hesiod and Aeschylus and Euripides and Herodotus and Xenophon, it is above all, let us never forget the country of our fellow citizens of Greece today, who in the modern period too have given us their world-class contribution, but who have suffered in that recession. The recession impacted greatest on the communities of the peripheral member states of the European Union. And today we find ourselves confronted by the challenge of the keen and growing awareness that in some critical respects, in institutional terms as I've heard, and in the quality of our responses, we have been failing to live up to the needs, ideas, and expectations of citizens of the European Union. It is clear now that as a direct result of the somewhat blunt and often insensitive handling of the crisis, social cohesion has been significantly damaged. This has had a consequence in fueling the rise of Euroscepticism, exclusionary forms of neo-nationalism, and austerity-sourced populism. Nativism, reactions that are built on negative invocations of fear and exploitation of ignorance, including a fear and ignorance that scapegoats the stranger, the other. These manifestations, however, are not the root causes of the discontent on the European streets. They are symptoms only. To come to grips with our source, we must delve deeper into structures, drill down to the assumptions on which policy is based, its processes sought to be utilized. We must ask how did a single hegemonic role come to prevail for four decades for a market theory that was extreme and which was accompanied, if you like, en passant with the exclusion of a role for the state come to be. President mentioned the, the union that came into being after the war. The state sought to assist the people of the union to recover. To answer such a question, we are called to engage in mind work, and beyond that, to reassert the right and space for mind work, critical scholarship, to examine the assumptions of the paradigm that has failed. That allows for a new, we must seek to 
create a space that will allow for a new inclusive paradigm and see how it might come to prevail. And it is only when we take the necessary steps to address the underlying sources of anxiety, including the social insecurity, uncertainty as to the future of work, the yawning, deepening equality gap, and the crisis of democratic unaccountability in global economics that we can capture the desire for cohesion originally envisaged in the best instincts of our founders. We are, after all, not inventing the concept of the social. When we speak of social Europe, was it not there as a principle in all of that better language of our heritage, including the founding moments of the European Union, for example, in the words of Altiero Spinelli and Rossi in the Ventitena Manifesto? But is a social Europe what we are seeking, all of us? The future of the European Union, I suggest, must be discussed in ethical and inclusive terms, taking account above all else of the anxieties from below. The future must be crafted from connections, I repeat, to the European streets. This requires a process that is open, honest, and genuinely inclusive, one that does not recoil from asking difficult, challenging questions. It requires an honest critique, for example, as to the distribution of life chances, one that constitutes an attempt to reimagine and rebuild. It involves recognizing how we look at each other in our vulnerabilities and differences, and recognizing that we will be judged by future generations as to whether we averted our gaze from the vulnerabilities of our planet, our continent, or humanity itself, or had the empathy necessary to celebrate our interdependency. And I'm conscious as I speak of the vulnerability of the Kurdish people. The prevailing political economy discourse for almost four decades now, has been sufficiently challenged intellectually, has not been, I beg your pardon, the prevailing political economy discourse to which I've made reference. For almost four decades now, it has not been sufficiently challenged intellectually or scrutinized with sufficient courage by the body politic, even if there have been occasional cracks that might have occasionally let in the light. The recent embrace by many institutions of behavioral economics, I'm thinking of, such as that by the World Bank, constitutes a small overdue recognition of what is failing. But that recognition is simply insufficient to the challenge we now face. And neither facing climate change or sustainability is any simplistic, often facile, placing of new lenses over the orthodox neoliberal paradigm sufficient to the task at hand. We cannot continue with a paradigm that has not merely failed, but which has imprisoned intellectually so many policymakers and their supporting intellectuals and commentators. Such an approach would simply mask the manner in which context was abandoned in the hegemonic policies of recent decades, and how in doing that, the critical care and emancipatory potential of disciplines such as sociology and political science 
were eschewed in a narrow practice that had no tolerance for discussion as to the adequacy of theoretical insight, methodological rigor, or the discipline of empirical validation. We have, as a result, had a lesser economics, one that is at best descriptive of a set of measures that sought to satisfy an ideological position rather than assist in creating policy options that could be social and emancipatory in their reach. The moving of economics from political economy away from philosophy, the contraction of philosophy itself to an internal scholasticizing has left economics and social studies in a form that is at best one of description rather than analysis, narrative suggestion, or theoretical vigor. It is heartbreaking for me to say this as a former university teacher, to realize that with a diminished role for the state being pursued, those institutions gifted with responsibility for independent critical thought, having been made fragile as to their funding, bowed to pressure, and became colluders in a utilitarian myth that substituted on critical description, half-truths, and thus rationalization of what is failing, instead of, as they were founded to give us, creative, collective, scholarly thought. With neoliberalism as the dominant ideology that has been shaping our world today, notions such as democracy, social justice, equality and humanitarianism have been replaced in the personal language and living of the, uh, by a crude and forceful individualism, driven by an insatiable consumerism, social indifference, and an aggressive self of aggrandizement, thus further reinforcing the decline of ethically inspired political advocacy that results so often in the divorce of the purpose of intellectual practice from the pursuit of universal values like truth, justice, and peace. And those who've benefited from such a flawed model are never, have never been the public, now or in the future. It is a minority who benefit and who, in the defense of an unregulated accumulation, insatiable, can ignore the consequences of their model, be it in ecological or social terms. This minority, of course, is often footloose, existing beyond the reach of regulation or accountability by state or parliament, indeed out of the democratic reach itself. And data indicate that this minority is getting wealthier, more powerful, at the expense of the poorest of democracy itself. The growth of an unaccountable form of speculative capital activity can dislodge even the best efforts of governments. This must change. I suggest that the very survival of democracy itself requires it. But there is a growing light. Because of the work of brave scholars, some who endured in these times, others with new work, I believe we are now at the cusp of a paradigm shift in the political economy discourse. A shift that has the potential if lodged among the body politic, and should it gain widespread institutional acceptance, can be transformative, can assist in the great challenge we face to deepen democracy, achieve accountability over a growing and threatening global realm of unaccountable corporations 
can help us to turn the tide at last on yawning inequality. And paradigm shifts do happen, even in economic theory or practice. And we last saw such a paradigm shift in economic thinking in the early 1980s as Keynesian thinking gave way to the neoliberal paradigm advocated by Friedrich von Hayek and Milton Friedman, which much of Western society embraced with what was a determined, unfettered abandon. A new paradigm of economy is now urgently required, one that might steer us back towards that what will be a long but essential road of societal and ecological reparation, one that will address and reduce inequality while simultaneously operating within an ecological awareness of the planet's natural systems and their constraints. Not easy, but necessary for survival itself and our best prospect for an enduring form of cohesion in how we live together. Such a new form of economic heterodoxy is an, is an ecological social paradigm. And it has been well advanced by engaged public intellectuals, such as Professor Ian Goff and others. Professor Goff, in his popular book, Heat, Greed and Human Need, outlines how the alternative paradigm is rooted in the concept of human need over insatiability. It promotes notions of gender equality, redistribution of income, wealth and resources, and a reconfigured social consumption and investment strategy that transferred resources, for example, from capital from developed countries to developing countries in such a way as to achieve this eco-social welfare form of economy. The eco-social policies that underpin such a paradigm must concurrently pursue both equity as well as wider social justice through sustainability and sufficiency goals within an activist innovation state. Yes, working with partners, but with substantial state investment and transparent and robust regulation and planning. Socioeconomic measures are also required to negate any adverse impacts of the ecological transition for the poorest in society and to ameliorate rather than threaten to deepen growing levels of inequality. I believe the approach that scholars such as Professor Goff offer is an approach that is garnering support as one that also represents our very best response towards ideas of intergenerational justice. This is a responsible economics. It accepts that the concept of accelerated economic growth at infinitum is inherently flawed. And scholars such as Ian Gorbara suggest recovering a discourse and a political economy discipline that has fallen prey to an uncritical embrace of neoliberal refrains. They advocate for an economic model of pluralism, which emphasizes the finite nature of the Earth's natural resources and the role that rich nations must play in ameliorating crisis in which we find ourselves. As Ian Goff puts it himself, consumption and consumption-based emissions ignored by the green growth agenda must be given equal priority in the rich world. Issues of global equity, almost entirely absent from international climate negotiations so far, must be discussed and confronted. 
affluence has a class as well as a national dimension. Such work as that of Ian Gorman, Kate Ray Raworth, Mariana Mazzucato, I think Sylvia Walby and others, and there are many and they're growing, offers hope by showing us how we can as a global community ensure that no one falls short on life's essentials from food and housing to health care and political voice. We should remember needs are measurable and attainable. Wants are immeasurable and insatiable. I think while ensuring as well it enables us collectively that we do not overshoot our pressure on Earth's life-supporting systems on which we fundamentally depend, such as a stable climate, fertile soils, and a protective ozone layer. Such ideas of balancing outcomes were, of course, at the heart of the discourse here in store. I often think as well, if it is as I have described it, how legitimate then would it be to take the development models we've had it and say we should extend it to Africa, extend it to other parts of the world. We need a new model derived from a new paradigm. And public intellectuals in Western democracies have historically vociferously denounced war and, and oppression and the violation of universal values such as truth, social justice, freedom, whenever and wherever they occurred. I am concerned that this is not now the case, as the deployment of human, scientific and technological capacities are once again being delivered to preparations for war, exploitation of conflict, a diplomacy surrendered to fear that recoils from moral decision, and livelihoods made fragile in a trade war provoked by the strong for their unique and sole benefit, ignoring all consequences, and for a minority within the land of the strong. I believe public intellectuals have a particular ethical obligation as an educated elite to take a stand against the increasingly aggressive orthodoxies of the marketplace of extreme individualism that have permeated all aspects of life, including academia. And is it not as important, I say to the young, to experience the development of the social self through others and one's connection to citizenship and history and nature, as it is to accept one's role as a useful unit in a consuming culture? Universities function within a culture, and how they negotiate that relationship defines their atmosphere. Their ethos establishes too whether they're contributing to the culture or surrendering to its successes. The challenge for us all now is to achieve for all of our citizens and their different generations a capacity and an institutional space to debate and seek a version of eco-social political economy that meets our demands for a deepening of democracy. We must not despair, even if at present that capacity at so many institutional levels is not so much in evidence or is weak. We must encourage and support the growing body of academic thoughters advocating for an alternative. There is work to be done and at every level, for there is no clear evidence in European thinking 
that collective welfare is recovering, is replacing the aggregation of individual property-based wealth as an aspiration. The prevailing narrative seems to be trapped intellectually in a structure of thought which it appears unable to challenge, from which it seems unable or at times unwilling to escape or exit. This is, as it were, being rendered mute, as Professor Hartmut Rosa of Genent Leipzig Universities recently put it in his work, Resonance, a sociology of our relationships to the world. It presents a fundamental challenge for those of us wishing for a renaissance of democracy and cohesion in Europe and throughout the world. I believe that the transformation that is required must seek to extend and deepen democracy and indicate changes in our political structures, as we've heard, our institutions, our language of discourse, our way of dealing with each other and in our consciousness. Such a program requires not just intellectual work, but its delivery, performative again, its delivery with moral courage. It needs a commitment to dialogical thought and the patience to listen to the assumptions of the other is essential, observing the essential courtesies of discourse. Sylvia Warby has argued in her book, Crisis, that the economic and fiscal crisis which we've lived through over the past decade and the resulting recession, experienced so severely, for example, in Ireland and Greece, has cascaded through society and ensue, ensuing fiscal crisis over government budget deficits and austerity has led to a political crisis, which in turn now threatens to become a democratic crisis and a wider crisis of legitimacy for the European Union. Parliaments matter. Centuries of effort have been invested by European citizens in securing the vote, indeed in extending the vote. It is to Parliament that citizens look for accountability, for strategic alternatives. If national parliaments, if the European Parliament, lose the capacity to deliver accountability, where else might it be found? The political-economic concept of deliberative democracy does provide us with the means with which we may engage and promote our vision across the citizenries of Europe, actively encouraging societal participation. Jürgen Habermas brilliantly has contributed generously, persuasively on this topic, asserting that political decisions should be the product of fair and reasonable discussion and debate among citizens. It follows that we must become more aware as citizens about the often obscured or consciously hidden ideological assumptions that are lying behind policy decisions. We must thus foster universal political economic literacy to deal with new and existing challenges and a better understanding of the nature of value and what constitutes happiness and well-being. Habermas has been critical of the technocratic policies advocated by several member states that continue to be imposed on the populations of the economically weaker and crisis-stricken member states, and which have had the effect of undermining solidarity across the European Union. He argues for an alternative to the technocratic, austerity-centric approach, that it be replaced by a deeper democratization of European institutions 
through which the EU might have the possibility of fulfilling its core founding principles and thus ensuring, as he has put it, rampant market capitalism can once more be brought under political control at a supranational level. He has argued for more profound political integration in Europe so as to create a shift in the balance between politics and the market, which is continuing to the present day in the wake of the neoliberal and self-disempowerment of politics. This disempowerment of politics was evidenced during the 2008 financial crisis and subsequent economic recessions across the EU, as pressure being exerted by the financial markets and politically fragmented national budgets, which quite scandalously fostered a collectivizing pejorative self-perception of those populations afflicted by the crisis. Habermas asserts that the response by markets, lead governments, key international organizations, and the mainstream neoliberal commentariat all contributed greatly to the punitive character and grounds on which assistance was offered to program countries by turning the donor and the beneficiary countries against each other and fomenting nationalism. And as president of a country, I say, it led to language about each other that should never have been used. And are there then any lessons we've learned from the economic crisis, the self-regulating market, and the long devastating period of austerity imposed of millions of European citizens? I believe there are many. In politics, policymaking, academia, the commentariat, citizens at large, who have reassessed what were sometimes strongly held beliefs with a newfound appreciation that the state does and should have an important role to play across all spheres of public policy, that good regulation does matter. The legitimation crisis is not, of course, confined to the European Union or its members. The role of the state at a global level will be crucial in approaching issues such as climate change and sustainability. And then as to this growing realm of accountability, there is a serious problem. What of institutions not answerable to Parliament, people or their laws? It is an issue that was addressed by His Excellency, the President of Greece, in the Aristotle Lecture in 2016, when he spoke of those non-state entities of international scope, devoid of democratic legitimacy, financial markets, credit rating agencies, and the President has spoken that year of the declining discourse on social welfare and the rule of law, as he has again this evening. The European Union, dear friends, was born with an invocation for solidarity. What does solidarity demand of us now? That is the challenge to us all. I suggest its focus must be intergenerational, be defined as a multidimensional concept, embracing ecosystem, society, culture, and economy. There must be a collective approach in bringing what is unaccountable into accountability. For it is this combined with lack of institutional transparency that is contributing to an undermining of public trust and democracy. And where do we go from here? I believe the impressive setting of today's address carries weight and suggests a number of important points. Can we make such a similar space as the agora of the past was available to us today, an agora whose participants will help us 
keep traditions such as the Socratic tradition alive, allow for the questioning of assumption and methods? Can we move society away from the current trajectory of unrestrained concentration and accumulation of wealth, of deepening inequality, ever-failing social cohesion and ecological chaos, to a civilization of simplicity and inclusion and equality? Can the music of our hearts and a new beat make a new beat to our mind? One from which ideas in a Hellenic in a Hellenic way become truthful words and actions follow that might be remembered by future generations as having been informed by both rationality and soul. I answer that of course it is possible. I must answer that. And if it is radical reform that is necessary, let us be courageous. Let us remember that others before us in the energetic pursuit of new thought that characterized the European Enlightenment, for example. There were some powerful European examples within it of dissident and radical thought, such as that of Diderot, Kant, and Herder. They, in their times, identified that flaw in the Enlightenment thinking that had led to support for empire with its insatiable drive, which they courageously challenged. They, in their time, sought to dislodge the paradigm of unaccountable imperialism, domination, and cultural expression and extension. We should collectively support the concept of an ambitious new European social dimension in which a binding and effective pillar of European social rights, not just enshrined, but delivered, one that should be achieved with the involvement of cooperation with, for example, international agencies like the International Labour Organization. One that will not only support decent minimum wages and improve workers' rights across the EU, but facilitate participation in all areas of life of the public space. And I welcome the trade union movement to the front rows of those taking a stand on climate change and sustainability. And above all, we need to offer the European social model as a gendered eco-social one and move on, escape from the blinkered neoliberal iron cage. I believe that often radical institutional reforms to which I've referred could yield a deepening of deliberative democracy address the growing alienation from the European Union felt by so many of its citizens, over an alternative to, for example, austerity populism, provide the European institutions with greater legitimacy, that is, by fostering deeper political economic literacy among all our peoples, that we bring about the so that we can bring about the necessary ecological social paradigm shift of which I speak. Democracy demands it, humanity needs it, the world requires it, and we should all help. And in doing so, we will be invoking and benefiting from the power of reason and the grace of thought that is the grief gift to humanity, a gift that endures. A cordiality, President, dear friends, Garimila Mahake, Efaristopoli.